Welcome to the Fly Phenomenon Podcast. I am your host, Shane Hazen, and with me for the third straight week, we continue in this tradition, is we're Ted Haycraft. Torturing our audiences out there. Yeah, we're still doing this uh, format, figuring out things. I, I, I made an amendment immediately after we recorded last episode where I'm starting to think maybe there needs to be a, a certain amount of enthusiasm oh. from one person on the like i mean no no no. we both love dick tracy obviously but the first episode my pick was a movie that we wanted to like but i was negative on i have i've had a thing for a few years that um aaron sorkin a few years ago wrote this great essay about david fincher after they'd worked together on social network and he talked about how david fincher won't talk negatively about other filmmakers and the specific reason he said it because he knows firsthand that making movies is hard and it's easy to get wrong and he understands why movies go wrong and so i i took that to heart and i've always well that's what that's that's interesting you bring that up because a friend of mine at work he's not there any longer but he kind of threw that at me it's like ted you're you know i like uh you're really you know you know what it takes how hard it is and the creative process and everything about movies. That's why I think you're such a much more nicer and much more uh, kind to movies than most. Well, and I've said it to, uh, to you many times. I think your infection is the something that like one of the reasons I, I mean, I love talking to you about movies and it makes me feel better about it. And it's just, whenever you start to tear apart a movie or just nitpick what, why it doesn't work, unless there's something there's, there can be a communal fun and in, in, like coming together, why a movie doesn't work and realizing together. But for the most part, it's cheap. It just doesn't add anything. No, if anything, I, I want New York, New York. I want, you know, we talked about, I want that to work. We know? both wanted it to work. Yeah. And, and I think it does in some aspects, but then a lot of things, it seems to stumble somewhat. Too. Okay. Well, we should move on to uh, tonight, today's movie, which is my pick. But you said you have something you want to read. Yeah, uh, uh, I want to have. Uh, I got a book here I brought on a, on directors, and I'm going to have Shane. My eyesight's getting bad, so I want Shane to read this opening line about Michael Powell here, the director of the film we're using today. Highly individual British filmmaker responsible for some bizarre but beautiful entertainments over 44 years as a director, many of them showing remarkable use of color. His films are intrinsically British, yet almost all of them tinged by the desire to do something different. Thus, some of his work is refreshing, some exciting, some demanding, and some stimulating. When some of these qualities meet, as in A Matter of Life and Death, Black Narcissus, or Peeping Tom, he comes close with his sense of opulent visual beauty to creating a masterpiece that refuses pigeonholing into any particular genre. Good, that's that's it. Stop there. This is a 1983 book. Who wrote that? By a British guy. His name is David Quinlan. And uh, he saw Peeping Tom in the theater as a kid, like 13 years old, and loved it or something. <laughs> so one reason I wanted you to read that, because this is 1983, and the description of him, in 1983, uh, and still to this day, he seemed, uh, Michael Powell is almost like a, uh, a secret... Uh, yeah, very much so. And especially this period you're describing, he was oh, virtually really? unknown. It was, you know, I, and uh, you hear Scorsese talk. Um, he talks about in front of the, he does an intro on the uh, disc of another pile film. I know a, where A great I'm, Criterion edition, yes. Uh, I know where I'm going. Oh, I was talking about. Yeah, no, this, there's a, another film called I Know Where I'm Going. There's several pile films on Criterion. And Scorsese does his uh, Into the Camera intro. And he talks about how he would see these, bits and pieces of these films on black and white TV cut up and, and Coppola would see some. He, Spiel- g- he gave the same intro on A Matter of Life. Oh, maybe that that's too. on there too. Maybe it's maybe I'm mixing it up. 
and he said that we would we and we would talk about these and we and trying to figure it out, and then I I came to him because of Scorsese's obsession. So I mean, somewhere I was reading somewhere like Red Shoes is almost a religion, uh, religious uh, to Marty. I can believe that. Um, and uh, the uh, but a laser disc, you know, they also these laser disc before the DVDs came out, and they had Colonel Blimp and the uh, Red Shoes and stuff, and they had these commentaries with. Martin Scorsese and Michael Powell commentaries, uh, is that, but of course I'm a diehard Scorsese fan by you know in the seventh. Yeah, so just in case we haven't made it yes. clear, today's movie is a matter of life and death from 1946. And uh, Ted, you're I, I was and and I think you I think we are uh, talking about uh, uh, a qualified masterpiece by Powell. What's so Pressburger. funny hearing you talk is I think this whole recording is just going to be a competition for who loves this movie more. <laughs> Well, yeah, so you and I, okay, I want to start out by pointing out, you and I over the years have had this ongoing conversation about, um, we talk a lot about, we usually frame it in comics, but it's about mainstream, historically American mainstream sophistication, about when did sophistication, adults level sophistication come to the mainstream, we talk about it frequently in comics, but then you turned at one point the conversation on to American film. Now in comics we usually say, is it the 1986 with uh, um, Frank Miller, Alan Moore, Art Spiegelman, or is it earlier than that? Um, yeah, it's more so when, when it comes to comic books, the writing. You know, artwork, you know, was, you know, you always had right. great outbursts of great art. But. And it's weird because we also, have the, I've been thinking about this week because we have to qualify it too, just especially when we turn to film because um, our candidates, when we, I know my candidates when we talk about film, we go back to the 40s. And I've, over the years, I've come up with different ones. My current one, I would say, is Grapes of Wrath, uh, John Ford's Grapes of Wrath, uh, the John Steinbeck novel. Or another movie from this year uh, that came out the same year as A Matter of Life and Death is uh, The Best Years of Our Life, a great post-war movie. And the criterion I've been thinking of is when does adult-level ambiguity start to come into the storytelling? When does things not get neatly tied up? And there's a part of me that really wants to put this movie in there, except as we're going to dive into, the really fun ambiguity about this movie is the dual levels of is this a fantasy or not, which to a certain extent, you know, Wizard of Oz, other movies have done this. But at the same time, this movie is shockingly modern and just so sophisticated <laughs> and, and, and just it just knocks it out of the park on a technical storytelling level. It's so much fun. Um, it is the first Jack Cardiff movie to work, to work with the uh, Archers, the name of uh, Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger, the uh, writing, directing, producing team. Yeah, we should mention it. that the, yeah, that this is a team. At, the, at this time, at the beginning of their careers, they were a team. They wrote, directed, and produced together, and they shared a title card together. They did not, much like the Coens, or later Coens, they did not differentiate between who was directing, even though it was Michael Powell was directing, and Press, and uh, Pressburger was the one that was writing more. Is that what you... Uh, yeah, no, uh, yeah, but then Powell would actually go over uh, and, and do a, a final draft or a final take over what Pressburger had written and Pressburger took a look a lot of took care of a lot of the production problems and look it sounds like he did, took care of some of the uh Powell once the film was done uh, for the most part Powell would take off into a hike in the Scotland Scottish Highlands and Powell would be there with the uh, the post-production and the music 
Uh, Pressburger, uh, you mean, would be with the music? Pre- and yeah, the, because Pressburger's a, a, a musician himself. Well, what's so fun? Uh, I was trying to look up. Uh, maybe you have some more information about this. Uh, their breakup was uh, amicable, and oh, like yeah. it just it, was, ha- it, it just was, happened because people stopped. Or they they had trouble funding, and yeah. Powell then started directing on his own, and then their careers ended back together again. They did, they did a couple more films later on uh, uh, after they had uh, had, had broken technically broken up, but yeah, they did a couple more films later day uh, before they stopped altogether. Well, so one of the uh, undeniably, as I mentioned, Jack Cardiff shot most of the great uh, movies of theirs, and the te- the three strip Technicolor process that they were using here is pretty defining. I mean, what should, what's the word? should we? Yeah, textbook. But, but, yeah, but should we like first some of a little synopsis of the story? Yeah. Uh, do you want to do that, Ted? Well, just the David Niven. He's a, a, a British air uh, pilot, and uh, he jumps out of a plane without a chute. But right before he did that, he talked to a uh, station, the headquarters, uh, there, the Air Force Tower or whatever. An American one, played, but by, she, Kim, played but, by Kim Hunter. Yeah, okay, but uh, and actually playing an American girl from Boston, Massachusetts. And it's very important that she's American because uh, we'll tell you about that later. Right. Anyway, he survives the, the jump. And they he miraculously. miraculously meets her. They fall in love, but he's. It turns out he was supposed to die. I don't want to give. If you haven't seen this thing, uh, I don't know. We may end up giving it away. I, I think we should dive in. See, I, I am worried also about we're still figuring out format. And part of me, if we're going to be enthusiastic about a movie, we it's weird because I want to sell this movie to people, but I also need we need to talk spoilers. Yeah, but uh, the wonderful thing is, here's the great thing about it. Uh, Heaven. Well, I, I don't want to. Say, I don't want to call it heaven. Well, the thing I, is, I want to he- talk about that too. There's some point in that. We, but but the afterlife of what happens to you after you die in this universe is in black and white, and Earth is in for three strip Technicolor. A reverse. Uh, a reverse of the Wizard of Oz. Oh, yes. Uh, right, and the fact that you and normally films are black and white, and then you know you would think, oh, glorious afterlife would be beautiful. In fact, it's so funny the guy that messed up the conductor who messed up uh, uh, retrieving him in time. He goes, he makes a joke. One is starved for Technicolor. There, <laughs> he's French, uh, and I'm, as you might not have been tell from the terrible accent. <laughs> but uh, anyway, yeah, one is starved for Technicolor out there, and he and it's just and Michael Powell. Talks. He said that it got laughs, and he goes. He says, "When I heard people laughing at that, he says I could do anything." There's... After that, when he heard that, he goes, "I can do anything." So if you go on and start watching the films after this film, you see that he follows up on that and goes for the. You know, he goes for the jugular. Do we? Are we done? Cinematic with, jugular. Ha, have we sold syn- synopsized the movie? Enough? I think so. Well, can I we, guess. Can we move on? From... I think so. I mean, but basically, oh well. Here, I, I guess we should say. So she, uh, the 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 Kim, uh, Kim Hunter, who we're who, gonna go, we, we're gonna have to go more into the story. We're gonna have to spoil this whole story, right? Right. Let's let just hopefully, if you're listening to this point and you haven't seen the movie yet, I really hope our enthusiasm just tells you stop this right now, watch the movie, and come back because we are deep diving into this movie and why? Boy, oh, this movie's so damn good. <laughs> Specifically, what happens is that he gets, uh, they don't say in the movie, but they between the lines, he hits his head and he gets a form of epilepsy, and they weren't willing to talk about it at the time. 
And the the woman he falls in love with is friends with a town doctor who also is a neuroscientist, and or at least is well familiar versed in neuroscience. And he's convinced that they need to operate somehow and fix the epilepsy. And he also they're also talking about this whole plot line with the um, the uh, conductor, the angel, the person that's supposed to guide you into what I forget what they call the afterlife in there. And so it he's being pulled into the afterlife or if he can stay on earth and it gets to a trial point as to whether he's supposed to whether he can stay or not and the doctor on earth is convinced that this is all in his head but it still matters because if he doesn't win the trial then he's going to irreparably go insane yeah the doctor totally That's the non fantastical, right? But what's what's so funny? You're almost convinced that the doctor does believe it because what happens when to him, you know, in the process? That's a part I almost don't want. Bad. Oh God! Oh, this movie's so good. (laughs) So, uh, but yeah, I just I got to go back to just Michael Powell. If you watch this film and are not uh, enthralled or enchanted by it, you know, I'm 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 wondering how true a film fan this movie. This you movie, know. it just hits on every level. Cinema, when it works, is supposed to hit on so many levels, and this does it. So, I, I, okay, let's, I want to ask you, when was the first time you saw this movie? I saw it uh, at the Belcourt in Nashville. I knew about it. I had read about it. Uh, I think I even knew about it under its USAA title, Stairway to Heaven. The, the, so in it, one of my books, in a picture book. But I didn't see it till I post-Scorsese starting to blabbering about how much he loved it. You'd seen, like, Red Shoes and Black Narcissus up to that point, right? No. I don't really? well, well, no, I, maybe I, probably Red Shoes. I was gonna say Red Shoes. I think I had seen. No, th- I still have uh, quite a few uh, Powell films to still see, but I saw. I got the chance to see it. They did a re- restoration. I don't know what year it was, but the book I'm court, guessing it would have been 2008, 2009. Yeah, and I got and I was down there for that. It was glorious to see them on the big screen in 35 millimeter. And you saw in 35. That's yeah. oh, that's got to. I would have first seen it. Ted, we were discussing this before recording. Ted was convinced he introduced me to the DVD restoration, which as where I first saw it. And it's it's a double di- or it's a double it includes a later Michael Powell movie, which to be fair is a bizarre movie. Yeah, Age, solo Michael Powell. Age of Consent is one of Helen Mirren's first movies where she is close to eighteen years old and is naked for the majority <laughs> of the movie. It's yeah. got James Mason, and uh, it's got a very it, it entitled song that would not last in the Me Too era at all. And but, but yeah, I picked, I picked it up in Austin when I was coming down to visit you on your first visit, and I was so excited to get you know because uh, at the time the the, the 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 Michael Powell stuff was just kind of coming out, just very you know sprinkling out. It wasn't you know there wasn't a deluge. You couldn't get your hands on it, and you kept on hearing about this. And then once I did, as I was discovering, I'm like. Oh my gosh! This is such a moviegoers love fest. Just you, I, I uh, it's, like I said it, but it seems like it's a secret. It's such a big secret. I foresaw the movie uh, shortly after you mentioned this on that same DVD box set. I had rented it when I was my first few months in LA working on a big movie, and uh, it was a very exciting time. And you're especially in the middle of a project like that, you're looking for inspiration. And this movie blew me the fuck away. It is, I just wanted everyone I knew to know about this movie. And yet it was still a hard sell. But one of the things that on a very basic level, being a, I'm a blockbuster kid from the 80s. And so I, one of the ways I got into the movies was studying special effects. And the special effects in this movie are so prodigiously used. And, and 
I mean, even rewatching this the other day, I was, st- I was so blown away with how the high volume of them and like how free they were but at the same time like they they, they're very meticulous these movies are not high budgeted movies these movies are also so pristinely shot but so you the opticals in this movie you wouldn't want to do too many opticals because you mess with your negative that way and but at the same time like there's some special effects in there that like when you look at milestones of vfx films like weirdly some people talk about this some people don't that like things like citizen kane are in there and this is one of those movies that should be in there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, it, and again, there, what I keep on astounded at, you think of English cinema, UK cinema, you know, you think of early Hitchcock, the Ailing Studio output, but then you get to the kitchen sink films and you get, you know, you just kind of get this uh, black and white dour or quaint comedies. And there's nothing like these films that they do that just seem there's like a there's like a spiritual sexual spiritual energy to them. And, 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 there's an and, adult sophistication. Yeah, to that and, and a fantastical element that anything seems, can happen too. Yeah, and and, and they just seem to be off kilter a little bit to make it going. Gosh, you know where is this coming from? And how do you know these two guys together create this magic? And I, 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 I challenge you guys if you're out here if you if you haven't seen any of these films. Well, the way I I would I was trying to sell this movie at the time, and I still kind of think of this way is you mentioned Hitchcock. They were contemporaries, and they knew each Powell other. Powell actually wrote with Hitchcock on a film. Yeah, and in fact, uh, there's a we can go deeper into this story, but before and while casting this movie, um, Powell and Pressburger went to America because they were also in the ver- the war is ending, and they were selling their films uh, to American audiences. And they were also casting the movie. And Hitchcock was the one that recommended Kim Hunter for this movie. And um, I have always viewed Powell, there's a certain visual, the, the way they set up their movies, uh, they seem like they're storyboarded within an inch of their life. But at the same time, the visual language they tell with is so writing with lightning. And in many ways, Powell is the Hitchcock, if Basically, if Hitchcock's dad hadn't taken him to a jail cell when he was a kid, because like I mean, I love Hitchcock. The Catholic guilt. Yeah, yeah, I love Hitchcock, but Hitchcock is always obsessed with mysteries, um, criminality, good guys and bad guys, wrong man aside, maybe. Or he's always into like like there's a very formulaic there's there's a there's a straitjacket on the type of plots uh, Hitchcock would still inevitably do, and Pal Pressburger. They took those gifts of like writing with writing with the camera and went into so many different subjects. I mean, like beyond this movie, they got into opera, ballet. Well, that's one thing about yeah, the uh, Black Narcissus is a very good example of this. As opposed, I think there's a really good story, strong, strong story uh, plot element in the one we're talking about tonight. Uh, yes, right this is a very plotted movie. But uh, but but uh, Powell says color and theme. Are much more important than the plot. Oh, so if you like narcissists, you know it uh, came out in different movies, and and at the same time, when you look at a movie like this, this movie is very literary. I mean, the the amount of poets mentioned in this movie, and just the language in this movie. Well, that's interesting because uh, okay, let's get to some plot points too. We we keep on referring to the afterlife. It's never referred to as heaven. It's referred to heaven once, uh, but it's by someone offhanded. Well, it's oh, I I'm okay, but I'm thinking. It, it until we get to the end. What ha- I don't I remember. The way he quotes Walter Scott. 
Oh, right, yeah, right. The okay. judge. Yes. So and and God, I remember, is only mentioned until the very end too. Uh, right. It's very. It's and it's very. And, and I mentioned it to a friend. I go, hey, uh, you, you know, it's not it's not seen heaven, but he, uh, but uh, my friend goes, oh, but they did mention Jesus. And I go, yeah, but they do mention Jesus. But they mentioned Jesus next to Plato and uh, 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 Aristotle. Uh, yeah. So in other words, Jesus is an equal philosopher next to the. Right. He's rattling off. Great writers, philosophers, not exactly the the uh, church, the religious savior. So it's very they're playing it really uh, interesting because they don't want to they don't want to uh, the, the you know if you're very strongly religious and how you know, how you picture heaven and everything else they don't want to they don't want to turn you off. But. So to the erudition in this movie, I, I want to point out the origins of this came. The British film uh, industry at this point is still regulated by movies, Churchill, and I don't know who. This is the last film they did pretty much were, were still in, in, under the Ministry of Information. And they asked them basically to make sure uh, Anglo-American relations were good. They wanted to make sure the English and Americans <laughs> were getting around. And it's funny because there's a funny quote. It was basically they considered them, oh, it was, um, it was, Overpaid, oversex, and over here was the quote. Yeah, yeah. The the uh, the, the relationships uh, had started to weaken again between UK and, and USA. And Powell goes, "Well, we've already done those films." They, early on, they had done a couple of propaganda and films. And he loved America. Uh, yeah, and he, he said we he, already... ma- he married an American, he, which yeah. we should we talk about that too. Well, that, I mean, I'm sorry. Uh, I mean, uh, that's Powell. Uh, Pressburger said we already did a couple of these films: 49th Parallel and the, another one, and uh, that that try to you know uh, bridge the gap there. It's so forward thinking too. There's a lot of, oh my, gosh. there's all kinds of the the, uh, the different ethnic uh, people that show up. Oh in the film. my gosh! And, oh uh, man. Uh, well, okay, okay. So, um, so they get to heaven, and oh, <laughs> I just laugh so hard at this. So heaven is, um, if you want to call it heaven, the af- the next world. I think is what they officially call it, yeah. or something like that. And the movie takes place a month before D Day, and everyone coming to heaven, I notice multiple times, are all allies. There's no axis in there. There's there was apparently <laughs> Courier seventy one was supposed to originally maybe they're going to write him German, but there was something they couldn't do that. And the introduction to the Americans, as much as they're trying to make a peace between Americans, is comical because the Americans rush into heaven. They're just so like Coca-Cola. oh we we meant to be here and, and they, go they, go right stri- Coca- they go straight to the Coke Coca Cola machine. And then, there's a vending Coca Cola machine up there. They ask about a U.S. show and then they, when they find out there aren't, they're like this will work out and they're like we want officers' quarters. By the way, you're all when you get up there, you get you're handed uh, wings and they're in a, a sealed plastic bag for you. Yeah, for convenient. And uh, one of the, one of, and then there's a shot coming up there that is the, the thing that just really started to blow my mind. It's not just. It's an intense model shot. It's a great set shot, but like they move over, they want to see the uh, what, what they call them, the couriers or the uh, workers who are trying to figure out who's going the to filing have down the filing the, yes. down below. And then it, it's oh, this is just cinema working, and like this is like modern cinema, like special effects movies. Like I, I, the, the other thing I love to tell people is like this is where the Coen Brothers were born. Um, there's a shot where it goes to the model, then it cuts to a matte painting, and it matches so well in the scope of the movie, which has gone back and forth between being so intimate and realistic to suddenly so fantastical. Yeah, you, we should we should mention that it opens up this prologue that's animation. Oh, my! I noted that, yeah, it's it's a great animated sequence. Um, I, I remember noting to myself, it's 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 a beautiful shot, but it looks a lot like the Duck Dodgers and the 30, 24th well, no, no, yeah, opening. Well, but, but, but the other funny thing in there that I noticed or noted was that they mentioned the, there's a supernova goes off and they go, is that the Uranian atom? And I think 
this has to be the first mention of the atomic bomb after Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Because, I mean, I was trying to figure if there was the first ever mention of an atomic bomb ever in a movie, but uh, Hitchcock's Saboteur has that plot line. Also, I, you know, I'm watching this, and I'm thinking, uh, this time around, I'm like, this is kind of like a... Uh, like a little bit of a Disney cartoon. Oh, yeah. And then there's a little, maybe a little bit of UPA cartoon from the 50s in America in it. And like you said, the Duck, Warner Brothers Duck Dodgers. And then it hit me, oh, no. It's also the opening to It's a Wonderful Life. With the wings? What? I wrote that down, too. Yeah. Well, the funny thing because is... Because like, up there, the, the, the animation, the talking, the, 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 they're up there talking mm, to each that's other. That's very true. Okay. Yeah, I get, see? Well, it's, it's an animated opening, but at the same time, until, like, movies later in the 70s, uh, I think 2001 would have been the first one that started it. Models took over more of this stuff. Animation really was a big part of special effects up to that point. Because, I mean, 2001, actually, a lot of the effects in there are done animated ways and i remember also pointing out this movie shares this other thing with 2001 before they had photos of the earth no <laughs> one knew what the hell the earth looked like earth is this weird green moss the, yeah they thought it would be green because the, the yeah the greenery yeah but then okay so then we get past this interesting animated prologue so you're like oh okay this is kind of weird and ethereal and whatever and then we get to this shot you know david niven in this burning aircraft talking to this close-up of uh kim hunter and if this scene is not the one of the best written, exciting, uh, it, uh, just grabs you. And if you're not grabbed by this scene, you're not going to go with this movie. I mean, modern. Okay, here's the other thing. Modern audiences will know this scene, especially if you're a Marvel fan, as this this scene was very liberally um, uh, homaged, if you will, at the end of the first Captain America oh, movie. Yeah. Very nice. And no, no, it's, it's very deliberate because uh, the ghost writer, ghost scriptwriter of that movie is Joss Whedon, who's a big fan of this movie. I'm not 100 percent sure he's the one that wrote that because I have a tendency not to give. Uh, Marcus and Mephili, the uh, people that wrote a bunch of that and a bunch of other Marvel credit. And since retroactively watching it, they, they're the MVPs of the Marvel Universe. But yes, that, that scene and the power of the end of Captain America is ripping off the opening of A Matter of Life and Death. Also, did you, did you think when, uh, the uh, doctor uh, who's working on David Niven, who was played by Roger Livesey, which we ought to maybe talk about him at some point, but he, uh, the way he rides his motorcycle and the way it's shot, because oh, you think of Lawrence of Arabia. Lawrence of Arabia. Oh, my I God. Like David I Lee, the... you know, obviously, you know. Uh... It was funny because when I was watching the movie, we were going to spoilers again. Remind me, we're going to spoilers. Um, when I first saw the watch it again, I'd forgotten certain plot points. And I just remember how reckless it was shot. And it reminded me of, of Lawrence of Arabia. And I was like, oh, I wonder where this is going. <laughs> and. Yeah. So, yeah, there's, I mean, just all kinds of stuff like that. Um, but that, uh, that opening, and uh, David Niven said this, this is probably one of his favorite roles he ever did. Yeah. Uh, he, he sees this is just his prime David Niven. At his, uh, at the, so at the end of this shot, it goes, it zooms in and shows a map of Europe with this gorgeous fog. This, have, this into, is after the animation. Uh, the, yeah, the, going off the, the promo, animation. Promo. And one of the other just tiny modern things is they use a real radio broadcast of Hitler in there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's like some really interesting audio uh, yeah. uh, things that are uh, throughout the whole film. Throughout the, oh, throughout the whole yeah. film. And then, I, how do you like that? There's this, this sequence when he, he lands, he, he survives his fall. Actually, this is based on a true story. That there, apparently, a pilot did jump and survive, and they're not sure how he did it. He's on the beach and he's walking along. He comes across this little shepherd boy, and the pan flute boy who yeah. is completely naked. He's completely naked, and so David Niven thinks he's still in heaven. 
He's just, and, he's just and, throwing clo- so his is, clothes off because he thinks his, his, he's leaving behind his earthly. Yeah, he takes off his uh, his outer. You know, he leaves his gym suit on, but he takes off his boot and and cloth jacket. But what's so funny is Powell and Pressburger keep extending the length of what he out. He still thinks it's heaven. I'm still in heaven. Oh, it's a beach. Oh, oh, there's you know a very uh, a very fantasy looking thing of, of a naked pan flute boy. And and, and then and, there's the distinct yeah. moment where he makes it real, which yeah. it, it's oh a, yeah. Nice it, again, nice, it, nice cut. I mean, well, it's not even. It's, well, no, I mean, yeah, it's a great sound. It's yeah. great. It's 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 a such a dynamic shot. It's, uh, I mean, how I feel like almost every one of these sentences is going to end with this movie's so good. You should stop what you're doing. And watch <laughs> I know. This. I mean, it's like uh, we should. I don't know if we're you know. Uh, hopefully, we're trying to entice you to uh, check it out. It's because it's so good. Um, <laughs> I mentioned this earlier, but I, re- I I really was trying to sell people also that like I I don't think the Coen brothers have ever mentioned this movie, but like I feel a lot of Big Lebowski in this movie just because mainly the the fantasy sequence where you go through this like giant gothic set in between this very pedestrian set up until that point. I I, I hadn't thought about it. I mean, I think what uh, I what it, I, I, I think I, what it comes down to is uh, Coens can uh, continue this Hitchcock lineage of. Uh, uh, heavily storyboarding and pre-visualizing a movie, and um, you know, you know p- there are people like Spielberg and Scorsese who still storyboard, but not to the extent that people like uh, Hitchcock or Pal Pressburger would have put together a movie beforehand. I do, I do think that I, the Coen Brothers, uh, if you want to bring them into the the subject matter of this, is that that uh, they are such insular film fans, and their films. Or not for everybody. I, I uh, think I think that's where I got. Uh, and where I and went to. and again, we may be going on. We may be slobbering about this Michael Powell and Pressburger, the Archer's films, and they might not be your cup of tea. They might not be for everybody. Maybe that's why they still remain kind of a, a weird secret amongst hardcore film fans. Uh, they are just such a unique look and language, especially around this period where they got Jack Cardiff doing the Technicolor. And I'm not gonna say all of them work perfectly but there's a part of me that's just wants to throw down the gauntlet so if you don't like this if you can't see anything redeemable about this movie i don't know that that is kind of a, a snotty gauntlet to throw down so if you don't yeah. like this movie you don't like movies no yeah it is sounds it does sound uh, i don't want to i don't want it to be that way but boy it's just it, the the uh the unique vision these two guys to be fair okay uh pal says that this is his favorite of their movies and pressburger says uh life and death of colonel blimp is the favorite of his movies which i think is probably scorsese's favorite movie and no, no red shoes scorsese. Red shoes, yeah. that makes sense uh colonel blimp i've only seen ones that left me indifferent i probably need to rewatch that. no i, I remember really was really entranced entranced by that too the, uh, I, I had the I had the very basic pedestrian problem with that where I didn't know it was a three hour movie when I was watching it. They also had a you know they got in trouble with Churchill and the and the Ministry of Information. They didn't like the that the fact that this old British officer who's Colonel Blimp uh, was wanting to maintain his friendship with a German general. I, I had heard that. Actually. And uh, so here it's funny that because you mentioned earlier about how you know the whole reason for the the movie Matter of Life and Death. Is to pat the the, the the to unite the two, well not Germans but just you know in friendly. It's, it's it, the movie's released a year after the war ended, so yeah. I mean there's no love lost for the the uh, Axis powers. Right. That, that, well, and the Axis Germany of World War One sort of a different aspect, and then the Germany of the war too. 
Right. Uh, so. The uh, as much as we've been going on about the visuals of this movie from an editorial standpoint, and a, it, I, I went over the optical effects they were doing earlier, which are very impressive. But there's a lot of playing with sound and reversals and um, reverse shots, and whenever the angels come, time freezes, and there's some really fun basic stuff. What I. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, d- I did order, Powell's written two books, and his second one, which is a more thorough covering of his career, is a doorstop, so I didn't get to read much of it, but part of what I read from this movie was how much he, his special effects uh, regimen and, and came from a love of Cecil B. DeMille, and he used a lot of people that work with that, and they, they worked a lot off of old-style tricks like the Parting of the Red Seas from the Ten Commandments, the original Ten Commandments, not even the, uh, the 57 version. And there's a Real Pal Pressburger, there's a love of just special effects and playing around with things, fantastical things that you wouldn't see normally in a movie. And Ted, your eyes are glazing over so much right now. Well, no, I'm just, yeah, I mean, it's almost, it's, it's, uh, it's hard to articulate the, the, how these, these films work on you. Like I said, it's mood and color and, the music, and even I've I've just watched it just a few days ago, and I'm almost wanting to watch it again just to get some other pieces of dialogue in and 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 see some other watch some other sequences again, because they're they're just the the comp- composition of it. Uh, the compositions, uh, oh my god! And in fact, it's it's interesting because uh, there was a there was a, a South Bank TV show with Michael Powell talking about his life, and he he came, he said. Uh, with Black Narcissus, he finally thought he came to the point where he had he came up with the the composed film, and and he said that uh, it's it's it should be noted that I typically have problems with uh, composed films because they always feel very uh, airtight, and these movies do no, not. No, no, these are the, live. These are the, vibrant, vibrant, so <laughs> colorful. And the thing is, there's these painterly compositions that work and just have such passion behind them. And uh, I'd, I'd never forget. Another one that just shook me to my core, right from the beginning, uh, just like this one did, is uh, I know where I'm going. The title credit sequence—that is one of the greatest title credit sequences. I, I, what they do is they give you, they basically tell you the character, the whole story, and the full character personality of the character you're going to follow in the movie in the credits. And, and not only do they tell you this, they do it very graphically designed. I know where I'm going. <laughs> I mean, and the credits are like fit into the, like the back of a milk truck, or on the gate of a factory. As you're learning about this this female uh, Wendy Hiller who plays the female lead in the movie. I think uh, I Roger... do. I do want to go a little into this. I don't want to lose people, but the technical some technical stuff in this movie is just mind-blowingly ahead of its time. So Jack Cardiff, who became a, a very beloved cinematographer. This is technically his first movie. He came from this as he was working as um, in the Technicolor department, and he also worked alongside a bunch of other technicians that went on to have great careers, like Jeffrey Unsworth, who shot 2001 and Superman. And uh, Powell was uh, torn between using uh, uh, the one they've worked with forever, but Cardiff came up with this idea of how to do the black and white in color. Now, again, I'm sorry to deep dive into all this technical stuff, but it's very hard to mix color in black and white because you have differing film stocks and so if you print black and white on color stock you might have this overlap tinge that you don't want and 
then you get into this even further deep dive where you have to like alternate color stocks. And Michael Powell later married Thelma Shoemaker, <laughs> the editor for Martin Scorsese, and she talked a lot about their problems in doing Raging Bull, which has a one single color sequence, an eight millimeter sequence in there on top of the title credits, which have those glorious red, the red title in there. The process they did on this, I, I, I just was stuck figuring this out. And it wasn't until I read the book that I found out what basically what they did was the movie shot on color technicolor, but when they go to black and white, they take all the dyes out, so it's monochrome. But the transition shots in here, they still have to figure out the transition shots, and there are some buttes in here, like. Uh, the, the transition happens right in front of your eyes when the, the like the conductor's coming. It's from really difficult the, to dissolve to afterworld, and he lands on Earth, and the and you go from black and white to color right in front of your eye. It's very difficult to dissolve between the two. And one of my favorite transitions, uh, color transitions in the movie is, um, <laughs> oh my god, this shot is. Uh, it's when he's going under for surgery, and he's getting anesthesia, and his eyes. Close. David Niven. Yeah. David Niven's eyes close. And it gives you a single eye POV of the actual eyelid comes With over the lens. And it's eyelid, and, and it's. Uh, well, it, it, it. You said you you think it dropped. I don't know. I mean, do you think it really? I mean, what did you think when you first saw that? I I think I almost kind of laughed out loud. It's so uh, literal. It's such a. I, I don't well, know. Okay, okay. The, the, the fr- Do you the, think it works? I mean, yes, because the front. Why, the, why should it be in there? Because the front end of the shot, I'll give you credit. Maybe it's a little too much when you first see it, but the way it transitions, it goes into. Um, oh well, yeah. Once, co- once the lids close. It, once the lids close, yeah. it yeah. starts to uh, track down, yes. and it goes into uh, a modern day special effects thing called a cloud tank, which. Again, this movie just so modern and nails so many other things. We're doing so many with so many different techniques, and and it becomes this like Stan Brackage movie or, or <laughs> Stan Brackage shot in the middle of the movie. But it works, and then it transitions to heaven in black and white into this like really giant high wide shot, a special effects shot with a bunch of uh, people in heaven overhead. Oh no! I yeah, I they're just they're all, but the, you know, I with the shot when they're looking through the hole and they look down the filing. It looks like a, in some ways it looks. Which shot? The earlier on when she shows the, the one pilot, the filing cabinets and everything down below and the, the circular. That was the one I was referring yeah, to you earlier. Referring earlier the, when it goes into the map. It, it looks like it almost looks like a, a, a computer, uh, a board. A yeah, computer. no, definitely, uh, definitely. like and, a circuit board. Uh, circuit board, and which is really weird. By just by coincidence, I mean it's foreshadowing that circuit board. And then also, but the eyelid thing, yeah, I, I, I don't know. It, it, it always strikes me every time I forget about it, and, and it shows up. I'm like, oh my gosh! But it gets a laugh out of you. Uh, yeah, it gets it does get a little laugh, get a little uh, a giggle. This is uh, one of those examples of why the movie's still fun too. Yeah, me. yeah. I mean, I and, and, the, and inventive. It's so inventive. Yes, uh, it, it it always surprises you with a a, a special effect. Or uh, uh, the, the the dialogue, or the just uh, the the, the mise en of the whole look of the film is just wonderful. Yeah, you know, I not you mentioned. I think uh, th- there's like 15 different lines we should have mentioned that I, I I haven't given the dialogue credit. The language again, back to the literary. The like this is this is a literary movie. It's a very not smart movie in that regard. It loves language. Yeah, it's smart, but it's fun, and it's. I think it's a, a wonderful combination. Uh, it, it, it it encourages you to think 
uh, almost above yourself, uh, uh, more so than instead of sitting back and just letting it wash over you, you, you kind of you, it, it washes over you in a different way. I know there's there's one shot later in the movie where the co-pilot uh, comes back to Earth. Yeah. I still don't know how I did that. I mean, I, I had to rewind that multiple times where basically in the foreground, he stays in color and the background doesn't. And in modern times, you can pause it out to the foreground and it's not a big deal. But with optical printing times, it was especially it was harder with optical printers, which, you know, were how special effects were done until about the early 90s. And even then, when they were really popular in the 70s and 80s, it still was not the most exact science. Now, you go back 50 years, no one's doing it, and it looks terrible, typically. There's always all this extra dusk and film noise on there. And seriously, I don't know how, if he went in frame by frame and took the die out for the background, and they, I don't know how this shot was done. Yeah, there's a reason Cardiff got an honorary Oscar, finally. Uh, there's a shot a few later, a uh, shot in the same sequence, just a few later, that, uh, I think that was the one that really made me go gaga when on my first viewing because it's so casual. But as an optical, it's unnecessary. But it's, it's I watched it even more than that other shot where uh, they all walk through the door. No, and the, you could see some of the compositing doesn't work on the top of that. But uh, but at the same time, to do it so casually in a shot that didn't need to be done, it's a wide shot where three characters walk through a door invisible. Something that's very common now. It was even common probably in the fifties and sixties too. But just the way it was composed and done, it made it very difficult on everyone involved with that movie for shots just to make it look so casual and effortless. And it worked. Right. And then what about, what do you think about the, uh, uh, the look of the afterworld? Uh, just the overall look. Uh, it, Maybe it, that's where it doesn't the guilt... date. They were, oh, they were, they were, it was really interesting that they, you know, it's not like, well, uh, uh, little iron gates and stuff. And then you get the trial at the end when they pull back and you see the <laughs> model and the size of it and that shot just, it doesn't look fake. Yeah, Raymond Macy, uh, uh, he's uh, another American actor drawn over uh, and he goes, for the archers, I'll do any film, anytime, anywhere, or something like that, he said when he got the uh, the call for to do this film. he uh, He's the prosecutor. He uh, He's a revolutionary person that died so by the time he takes over the film i i want to say my first viewing it uh, gets a little talky there's a little bit of you know maybe a little bit of a drag here here and there this time i it was a lot easier the second time going through knowing that i think the drama to them was americans and britons getting along because the trial hinged so much on the differences between the british and americans and uh raymond massey plays in theory, the first man killed in the, in the revolution, which was yeah. funny because so I watched this the uh, rewatched this the other night. I've been doing this thing with my um, stepmom and my dad where I pick a bunch of I'm, I have an expansive watch list on TCM and let them pick an old movie to watch. And before watching this, I watched a movie, an Arthur Hiller movie written by Patty Chayefsky called The Americanization of Emily about the invasion of D-Day. And a big plot point in that movie is uh, the first sailor to die on D-Day. And this, then I watched the next movie about that takes place a month before D-Day. And in it is the first man that dies in the Revolutionary, American Revolutionary War. And just on a trivia note now, and one of my favorite actresses that the pile uses is Catherine Byron. Byron mm. And she's, she's in this film, but she's, she's the, the nun that goes crazy. You know, psychotic in the black narcissist. And she's stunning. She's and very interesting. And she's in several of their films. 
Guess what? She's Mrs. Ryan. Old Mrs. Ryan and Saving Private Ryan. You know, I, I did go to the IMDb thing and saw she was in Saving Private Ryan, but yeah, I did she's, not. But the, and when they, when the... Because well, I read, uh, it was in the Powell book, they talked about um, when he was getting ready to make the movie, uh, he came over to New York and uh, met with her and walked through Central Park, and they were attracted to each other in real life, but she had married uh, an American soldier. Well, but I mean, the, yeah, and they, again, it's that, that film's dealing with D-Day, uh, so it's all, it's all, all this... Oh, there's all this synchronicity going on here. It's, it's, well, it's, it's also movie fun. history. Well, it's also funny. The other thing that came out of the book that was really fascinating, I think you might have heard this in, on the Blu-ray, is that Powell, you, you mentioned earlier, Powell rewrote a lot of this. Before they shot the movie, they had to come to America for a bunch of different reasons, and there was only three specific ways you can come over just while the war was still going because there was still dangerous going on. And he ended up taking a ship crowded with a bunch of uh, wounded American soldiers who were coming back home. And he fell in love with the soldiers and rewrote the movie based on the banter that they told in the story. There was a bunch of soldiers from, like, Minnesota and Wisconsin who started fighting over states and which state was better. Yeah, and, of course, and, 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 uh, another way to look at this film and what David Niven has is, what is it, is, uh, PT uh, stress disorder? Post-traumatic stress yeah, disorder. Yeah, is another way. Uh, PTSD. That, which we didn't have a terminology for. We didn't have a term for it back then. Well, yeah. I, the, the thing... That, Powell, the, the the shockingly modern thing, I mentioned this earlier, how much neuroscience is in this movie, and there was some, some woman uh, that was a big fan wrote a book about the neuroscience of this yeah. movie and how accurate some of it was, and she was the one that they, they started talking about the epilepsy being the unspoken thing. This one doing. movie inspired this woman to write a, uh, just an entire book about it. Uh, I'm really obsessed yeah. with neuroscience. Neuroscience yeah. is, you know, you know, all your emotions are a chemical response in your brain. And this movie addresses this, like... I don't know when this would have, the next time it would have appeared in a movie. Yeah. Much less, this is probably the first mention of it ever in a movie. And, and, and uh, let's also don't, it, it, it's, it's funny at times. Oh. It's, 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 it's romantic. Oh, it's stunningly uh, romantic. And so, you know. It, the ending is stunningly got, touching and romantic. I, I know we're talking about these special effects and, this, and this, all the science jargon thrown out and, uh, and blah, 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 blah. But man, it, 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 it goes all over the map. It covers all the bases and, I, well, I think we're talking about how much this movie accomplishes, like on so many different levels. You know, tight narrative drive. It just—it's it, only 144 once, minutes. Yeah, once you get past the, the animated prologue and you get to the air, uh, David Niven and the aircraft, bang! It, it goes. It just—it just flies and, and and doesn't let up afterwards. You know, it just goes. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the doctor. I want to talk about Roger Livesley. Livesley. He is wonderfully British. And Powell, a favorite of Powell and Pressburgers. And I just, he was a really big discovery of mine. I never, I go, where has this guy been? But uh, Blimp, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure if I, you know, had seen him as an owner. I don't know where, where when he died or his acting career went. But these Powell Pressburger films he's in are just wonderful. He's in I'm Nowhere, I'm Going. Yeah, and, and those uh, two shot right next to each other. Yeah. This And he, he looks, the beard is so distinctly different. Yeah, apparently I, I, either on one of the discs or the books or something, they they were waiting for the Technicolor camera, so they shot. I know where I'm going. <laughs> they kill time, uh, to before they, they could get their hands on the camera. Yeah, I, I saw that, and I, I was trying to remember what movie the ca camera was, and I kept thinking it was over it. in America. I think that I think they had to come over. I thought it was a over. David Lean movie. Oh, but was I, it? Okay. Well, but I think he would have shot Brief Encounter at this time, which is a black and white movie. So I don't know if that fits. But um, yeah, and speaking of Cardiff, I just said I got I have to throw this in just because uh, uh, I love uh, one of my favorite favorite boyhood films was directed by Jack Cardiff. Jeff did do some directing, uh, not anything super great, 
But uh, there's a couple interesting gems to watch. But my favorite, it doesn't really hold up as a watching it as a dub, but I still love it. Is the, right. lo- the long ships? I don't know. Those it's a Richard Ridmark Viking movie with Sidney Poitier. Actually, uh, you have Tarantino was a fan of it. If you listen to uh, the uh, commentary, Tarantino did a commentary for uh, True Romance, and there's a long ships reference in there. And I was just like, oh my gosh, Quentin knows everything. But uh, it's a it's a really cool little film that Cardiff directed. Uh, and you, if you think about Richard Ridmark's physique and he's this kind of boisterous Viking, it's 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 it, it says a lot right there. I, I okay. I do want to say one thing. One of the f- best shots at the beginning of the movie. I, I going back to the technical thing. I have to get this out because um, this is so dumb, nerdy, technical. But the shot of Kim Hunter when she's talking uh, to Niven um, with, it, with her microphone up by the mouth. And... I am going to uh, m- tell you something so that you can no longer unsee it. Um, when you're an editor, one of the things you have to do is protect the cinematographer and all the camera crew because mistakes happen all the time. That shot is buzzed in the wrong way. At least that was my first viewing of it. Because what it is is when you're t- you have a close-up or you're trying to show a face, typically, with very few exceptions, what you want to do is you f- if you have a low-depth field, you want to focus on the eyes. And when you look at that shot, her hair behind her is what's in focus. Now, when I rewatched it, I then started being more honest with myself. You've heard cinematographers talk about putting Vaseline on the lens to get the soft, beautiful glow on it. I think maybe it's just a beauty shot. Oh, probably. I mean, yeah, I, I, I'd have to. What you're talking about, I have to examine that again when I watch it again. But um, I'm glad I had to shoehorn that one in. <laughs> but you know what I wanted? I, I really wanted to do with this podcast for both of us uh, was just to kind of tell you our reaction to this film in our own words. But we've been rattling off a lot of stuff that we read, knew, and have learned and uh, processed over the years about Pilot Pressburger, but. It's just, uh, uh, but the movies contain so much. Quirky. And the thing is, is, and the thing is, is we're, we're, you you mentioned this multiple times. The movies work. Yeah, it really does. I was thinking, I was on Amazon. Oh, I know what it would. Uh, the one uh, Pal Pressburger movie I still haven't seen. I one I didn't know if it's out there. It got recut by David O. Selznick. It was an oh no, yeah. Jennifer Jones, The Good Earth, is it? Yes, Kino Lobers put both versions out together. Really? Yes. Okay, I so it just came out. Is, that's not the title, is it? Gone to Earth. Gone, Gone to Earth. Earth. It's called Gone to yeah. Earth. And when it came out in America, it had a different title. And it was when Jennifer Jones was married to David O. Selznick, and the movie has her with a fox for most of it of the runtime. Yeah, there's a yeah. It's but yeah, I'm excited to get that. Kino Lower put that. That's out. the last one I think. I I, I mean I I you well, know I haven't we haven't talked about Peeping Tom and I, I Peeping Tom is. Uh, yeah, we should we should we should mention this uh, for you guys that if you're interested in Michael Powell and 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 you find this that what we said is int- uh, and interest you uh, has got you interested. One of the major films he does after he splits from Pressburger is the 1959-1960 uh, Peeping Tom, and what's so amazing it almost it pretty much destroyed his career. It was so shocking and it was a little too ahead of its time yeah. violence wise. It's about a guy a photographer a filmmaker. And he's filming uh, the the moment of death on these females that he uses his uh, he has a tripod with a blade in it, and uh, and he's obsessed about trying to catch the moment of death on on film. I haven't seen the movie in forever, and I haven't been blind. I haven't thought about it in a while. What is what relation was it to Hitchcock at the time? Were they still talking to each other? Were they? In I don't know. What, yeah, I don't know if they were uh, linked together or not. But because uh, Psycho comes really close. But to that's it. what that's what's so ironic is Psycho such a huge hit. And you know, even elevates Hitchcock even bigger, 
and Peeping Tom basically destroys Powell. It's one of those bizarre movies that's too effective. And it's also the uh, British critical press was just really rough. Oh, yeah, rough they were on really, really rough. And so uh, he did, like I said, he did, he did some stuff after that, but it didn't really, nothing, it was pretty much over for him. There and, and then he comes over to America, and that's when Spielberg and Coppola and, and Scorsese embrace him. He marries a pretty big age gap between Thelma Schoomaker and him, the, Scorsese's editor. He, I think he's on the staff for Zotrope for Coppola uh, as that, an advisor. Yeah. And, and, was... and, and stuff like that. And, and again, like I said, Spielberg, Spielberg uses Catherine Byron and Saving Private Ryan. So all this stuff's going on. It's all there. And even, I think, on the criterion of Red Shoes, they have one of the features is showcasing Scorsese's Red Shoes collection of items. He's collected that much stuff on Red Shoes. Really? Yeah. I did want to mention Red Shoes that when my nieces were growing up and they started getting into dancing, that was one of the films I showed them. And I, to be fair, I didn't show them the entire film. I just showed them some dancing sequences in there. But that was a captivating Well, scene. yeah, and, and, and whether you like dancing or not, that film is concerning about the creative, creative yeah. force. Uh, uh, being the, what you have to do to be an artist. But that goes, that goes to what you were saying earlier, his quote about uh, color and theme. Because yeah. right? that's one of the things where that movie is like, no dialogue for long sections, but you feel the opera of that movie playing out. You feel all the rhythms of that movie. It's that's it's it's working on so many what levels with music and color and just this is cinema without words when it really works. Yeah, the uh, uh, I don't I the the um, small black room is a criteria release. I really was I like it just came out of nowhere. I'm like wow, it deals with uh, uh, an alcoholic. Center around an alcoholic. It's 1949. Oh, and they go back to black and white. That's what they do after the red shoes. I haven't seen that. It's really, yeah, it's, it, I recommend. Oh, it's, I, like, it's like a post Lost Weekend alcoholic movie. Uh, yeah, maybe. I, I, it's been so, I just remember being, again, it, it, it's been so long. I need to go back and, and uh, but I was like, oh my gosh, they, they did it again. You know, Pound Pressburger. Every time I, I sit down and watch one, I'm just, I, I, I'm always amazed. There's a criterion of it? There's a criterion of it, yeah. And hmm. then another criterion that I loved, I remember, and I was I was kind of frustrated because my dad, I, I thought uh, my dad would like it, and he didn't He didn't get into it. And this one actually failed. It was a failure for them in 1944, before I know where I'm going, a uh, Canterbury Tale. Uh, and, that, that got mentioned a few times in the book, and actually, I I, I don't think I've seen that one. Yeah, it's, I might have. I can't you know, it's dealing with the Pilgrim's Progress and and the the city of Kent and just uh, where Michael Powell I think grew up in. And it, I was I was very emotionally moved in that movie. And uh, but I, I don't know. Yeah, I could see why it probably didn't do that well. Well, you know, when we talk about why Red Shoes worked and me going off about the the ballet and the opera and all that, on the other end of it, I saw uh, my last go in L.A., I saw Tales of Hoffman, which is a very much more pure opera. And that one... Might be a little hard. To get it it doesn't have enough landed uh, uh, narrative for me, and right. like so, it's, so a very composed film. When he's talking about his composed films, that's probably yeah. the ultimate composed film, maybe. Yeah, very much. So. So. But there's a great new restoration of that that's only a few years old. Yeah, I thought I had. It. I couldn't find my copy. I was I was pulling out my proud press bookers out on my shelf last night. Do you have them all? I no, I don't have everything. They are like Pokemon for your head. Uh, yeah, and there's still some that need to be uh, need to be released. Uh, I mean, officially on a decent release but you know we should you know um i don't know are we ending here uh do you want to go ahead and read this passage what what is this yeah passage? well i uh i just got a copy of uh midsummer uh the director's cut and there's a the little book with the screenplay 824 put out the screenplay well no not, there's no screenplay it's it's actually it's just uh 
art book. Really? I yeah. thought the whole thing was they were, huh. They do the screenplay books. Maybe they probably will do one. But. Well, this cer- there's a certain someone who uh, introduced. Or so anyways, we know Scorsese's just just the, one of the biggest Michael Powell fans ever, period. Uh, and one reason I think a lot of us have been introduced to Powell is through Scorsese and his uh, great links. But here, it's interesting. We, I, we talked about Powell and his thoughts on film, you know, about theme and color and stuff. So then I'm reading this, and he's talking about the opening of this uh, Midsummer uh, uh, film. What am I? And this is what this is quoting Scorsese. What am I looking for? I'm looking for people with a need to express something. Quote: I need you to experience this. Unquote. Not an ideal or a theme as much as a whole experience or a recollection or a profound emotional impression from which the ideals and the themes emerge organically, so to speak. It's difficult to put into words for a reason because it can only be expressed in moving images and sounds. In other words, cinema. i tell you one thing. We should end with the last words when heaven is... Do you want to go ahead and say that? Because it is... Um... I'm trying to remember all the poets in there. The big one was Sir Walter Raleigh's in the first speech. Niven plays a poet, and Livesey is a very big appreciator of his poetry. Shakespeare's dropped, of course. Okay, yeah. and um, But at the very end, the movie ends with Ted. You want the judge, it? quoting from Sir Walter Scott, goes, For love is heaven, and heaven is love. I think that's the best way to end this. So. Um Thank you for listening for all of our ramblings. Uh, <laughs> seriously, like uh, it's—is it on the Criterion Channel? Uh, no, There's no. a gorgeous Criterion Blu-ray of this, and I—I I, I beseech you. I have both the DVD and the Blu-ray because the blue, the DVD is the double set. Beseech you to go with the Blu-ray. The Blu-ray, this is, a, or if you ever see have a chance post-pandemic to see it on the big screen, go for that. This is just a gorgeous technicolor spectacle this is cinema working on all levels a matter of life and death all right that's all for this show thanks